Welcome back to the Own Your Potential podcast, where you'll hear stories from leaders across the globe about how they've taken control of their career growth and lessons on how you can too. I'm Peter Sherba, and today I'm very excited to be sitting down with Pete Deveni, former executive of BlackBerry, Descartes, and Dematic, and recently published author of Decoding Your STEM Career, How to Exceed Your Expectations. Pete, very excited to have you on the podcast today. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Why don't we just go ahead and jump right into it? Maybe you could take us through your career journey leading up to today. Uh, thanks, Peter. And, and honestly, I'm, I'm really excited to be on the show today and uh, excited to have the conversation. I'll, I'll start, as, as you said, by going through a, a career journey, which has been a 37-year career, so uh, I will do my best to yeah. summarize that in 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 ten minutes. Uh, it's actually a interesting process to go through to dis- yeah. distill that down. But uh, I started my career in in 1983, graduating from uh, the University of Toronto's uh, electrical engineering program. Uh, honestly, I didn't know what I wanted to to do when I was graduating high school. Uh, I knew I was good at math, uh, so engineering sounded like a, a reasonable choice. Right. Uh, computers were honestly really just getting going at that time. It was in my first year of engineering school that I fell in love with software and computers. And as a result of that, I switched to the electrical engineering program, which was uh, really where you learned most about about computers back in, in those days. And uh, loved those those first few years. And uh, in 1983, I had the opportunity to join a Canadian computer company named GIAC. Doesn't exist anymore, but it was fairly well known at the time. Uh, really interesting story. It was about a 700 person company. Uh, but what made them unique is that they built every aspect of the computer internally. 700 people built mainframe. Computers, and when I say every aspect of the computer, I, I, I really mean every aspect of the computer. They designed their own languages, built their own operating systems, built uh, their own motherboards, built their own cards, built their own applications for financial uh, uh, institutions and libraries, running virtually all the biggest libraries in the world, and and many large. Uh, banks use use the application. So I still look back at that, and I'm amazed that 700 people were able to accomplish right. it. The, the, the motto of the company was, uh, if you buy a computer from GIAC, you don't really have to worry about service or look anywhere else because we have responsibility for building and maintaining virtually every element of the system. Right. So um, that's really where I learned a lot about uh, computers and software. I left three years later uh, in charge of operating system development for uh, one of GX's line of mainframe computers. And it was a great opportunity because I don't think there was another job in, in uh, certainly in the country that would have given me that sort of exposure that, that early in, in my career. Uh, but, you know, ultimately, uh, it was pretty clear that that business model was going to break down. The company started to struggle and compensation became an issue uh, so in 1986, I, I left GIAC and decided that I would join IBM. I got a really good opportunity with IBM. That time, it was far and away the largest computer company in the world, uh, 350,000 people. Uh, I wanted to learn 
as much as I could. They had a great reputation for taking excellent care of uh, their employees, for uh, great training that they put on. There were courses available in virtually everything. And uh, they had a great human resources system where you could you could advance your career. So I was there in a, a number of capacities. First four or five years at IBM, uh, I did purely technical work. Uh, and then I finally made the switch into, into management and uh, uh, remained at IBM for 10 years in and advanced to a second level management position. And then I really had to make a decision at that point. It was around 1997. Uh, had three kids already at that point in time, and I had to decide, do I see myself spending the rest of my career at IBM? Right. Or is there more out there for me? And I, I ultimately came to the conclusion that, that uh, I probably wasn't going to achieve my career goals by sticking at IBM for the rest of, um, uh, rest of my career. So I got this opportunity to move to Waterloo and uh, join the Descartes Systems Group, which was a, a relatively small 100 person or so company that uh, was in the logistics space that was building a whole new platform for direct store delivery at the time uh, using object oriented technologies. I knew nothing about uh, logistics. I knew nothing about direct store delivery. I knew a fair amount about object-oriented development and building systems that scale. Uh, so based on my technical background and management background that I had at IBM, I got my first executive role as vice president of engineering of, of Descartes. Uh, met Peter Schwartz, who was uh, a young, energetic, brilliant uh, leader at the time. We got along well, and he had incredible aspirations for the company, uh, which he succeeded with. So over the next few years, uh, Descartes grew through acquisitions, partly organically, uh, went public. Uh, and I found myself leading uh, a growing team, uh, hundreds of people across uh, several several countries, and uh, and that went well uh, up until around 2000. Um, I got that bug again to look for something else. So that was the dot com boom that was taking place. Uh, valuations of companies were insane for technology companies. And uh, I got an opportunity to become the chief technology officer of a very, very small startup called Procure.com that dealt with uh, integrating, making it easy for suppliers to integrate into these buy-side marketplaces. And uh, well-funded, uh, high aspirations, uh, wanted to see what we could achieve. Unfortunately, uh, you know, as well as we did at the company, we built all sorts of great partnerships. We were bubbling with enthusiasm and excitement for what we had built, but the dot-com world virtually fell apart over overnight in 2001. Companies that were worth billions of dollars were worthless right. uh, weeks later. And Procure.com did not escape that either. Uh, however, we did manage to sell the company based on the technology that we built. So I found myself at BCE Emergis, who acquired Procure.com in, in 2000 um, or 2001, 
Uh, Emergis was actually the technology or e-commerce arm of Bell Canada at the time, around 2,000 people. Uh, so I joined uh, as, a, as, a, as a VP, but ultimately over the next few years, um, took on all of their financial applications and was vice president of one of their two groups that was called eFinance. They had an eFinance group and an eHealth group. Uh, unfortunately, what happened in around 2004 is uh, the company went public uh, became, you know, I got under a lot of, was under a lot of scrutiny and, uh, and they decided that the e-finance, which was the relatively, you know, younger sibling of, of, of the two business units, right. um, was, was struggling and they decided to shut down e-finance. And with that for the first and only time in my career, you know, I found myself laid off with right. uh, actually everybody else um, uh, on my on my executive team at, at at the time, and and they wanted to focus on eHealth. It's it's actually what became Telus Health uh, as ah. Telus bought the company after that. Um, but it turned out to be you know the best thing that ever happened to me in my career because I did a little bit of consulting for a little while, but shortly after that. I got contacted by by a, an acquaintance uh, who was uh, the the CTO or, or actually was senior vice president at at, at RIM, um, uh, the makers of the BlackBerry back in those days, about an opportunity to run um, BlackBerry software for uh, for RIM. And and honestly, at that time, there was no job I think in the country that was more appealing to me yeah. than that one. Um, uh, you know, for Listeners that 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 did not use um, that do never never had the opportunity to use a BlackBerry device. Uh, BlackBerry really revolutionized mobile communications across the globe. It was yeah. the must-have for everyone um, in any sort of corporate role. It was a status symbol, a sign of success, uh, and we were working on a technology that mattered so much to the world. It changed the way we we worked. Um, so I stayed at, at RIM for about 10 years or, or so, uh, always in the same role, although it expanded, uh, moved up to a, a senior vice president level at, at RIM with, with a larger uh, portfolio of, of responsibilities. Um, and, you know, with all good things come challenges. And what happened in around 2010, uh, the iPhone came out. Uh, Android devices started coming out one yeah. after the other. Uh, so we found ourselves, this very successful, globally known company, now all of a sudden competing with the biggest technology companies in the world. All of a sudden, right. competitors were Microsoft, Apple, Google, uh, all of who had two orders of magnitude more money than, than we did and uh, became, uh, became an interesting, interesting challenge. Uh, in around 2013, uh, the executive team changed. I found many of my colleagues had had left the company. Uh, what was maybe the most fun, most energizing job of my career was no longer energizing and certainly yeah. no longer fun. And I knew I had one more move left in me and I wanted to make sure it was a good one. I, I think I was searching for a job at that point that encapsulated 
all of the good things that I saw or felt through the various other jobs that I had previously. And, right. and I found this company, Dematic. Uh, it was headhunted for. Dematic is, um, to this day, one of the largest, if not the largest, warehouse automation uh, provider in the world. Uh, automates warehouses for the likes of, of Amazon here, more locally. Uh, Tim Hortons, Canadian Tire, you name it. Uh, anyone that has a warehouse and needs to uh, make sure it's run in an automated, efficient fashion is likely to be using Dematic technology, both hardware and software. Um, it was private equity owned, goals of either going public or, or selling. And to do that, they wanted to transform the company to be more of a software company than a, than a hardware uh, automation uh, company uh, on, on its own. So my job was to set a new software strategy for the company, uh, position it effectively uh, for, for a future sale. And in 2016, Dematic was acquired by uh, the, Keon, the Keon Group, which is the second largest forklift truck manufacturer in the world, recognizing that forklift growth was lagging behind automation growth. So they right. went by Dematic. And uh, I moved over to the Keon Group to run software for them, ultimately moved back to Dematic to run all products and solutions for, for Dematic. And, uh, and then in 2020, I found, well, that was 37 years uh, since I started. And, and I, I decided that there were other things I wanted to do in, in, in my life. So I retired from Dematic, um, which felt great to leave on, on such a high note, really, because... Yeah. Uh, achieved uh, everything that we wanted to achieve on Dematic. And, and I wanted to get some more time back in my life. I was traveling an awful lot. Uh, wanted to uh, do a number of things, including volunteering with universities that I do a fair amount of. I wanted to write a book. So I had a, a chance to, uh, to write uh, the book, Decoding Your STEM Career, that, that, uh, uh, that we'll talk more more about, and uh, and I still do an awful lot of consulting and advising in the robotics and, and warehousing space. So I discovered that there's a, a great post career career available right. for any of us, um, and uh, and you know I'm delighted to to have a little bit of time back and to be able to time you know spend that time with people that are most important in my life and and uh, and, and and still be professionally satisfied with with uh, the various opportunities that have been available. So there you go, 37 years in, in uh, hopefully 10 minutes. Yeah, no, we're almost on the dot. And it, I mean, such a full and clearly like satisfying career and, and a ton of stuff that I want to go through, um, you know, really starting all the way back at the beginning, um, because I had a recent conversation with a global uh, user experience and accessibility lead at my organization, Pool Sapien. Her name's Allison Walden. She also talked about the value of having a, a lot of varying experiences in her field early on and being able to go hands-on in a lot of spaces and how that unlocked like later uh, opportunities. And so similarly for yourself, you talk about the fact that at GIAC, you know, a company that end to end produces computers uh, from a manufacturing standpoint, um, you know, OS design, apps, software, like you mentioned, that gave you an opportunity to go hands-on in a lot of different ways and get exposure to a lot of different things that you may not have at another organization. Did that position you really well to kind of hit the ground running when you moved to the to IBM, a much larger organization, right, in, in the same field? And I guess my question would be, uh, it, it, did, were you, did you, as you move from maybe getting a more 
wide variety of experiences to IBM. Did you specialize once you got to IBM? Yeah, and and, and great question. Uh, so, absolutely, GIAC opened up doors because fundamentally, I think I got the best technical training in right. certain areas that that I could have possibly uh, achieved, and and that set the stage for me to get a good opportunity entering IBM. I specialized at GIAC in in communication protocols. So I was I built a local area network which didn't exist on right. GIAC uh, on the GIAC machines at the time. So we designed one, implemented it and, and built it. And then when I moved to IBM, based on that experience, I uh, I quickly I became part of and then the lead of uh, the uh, local area, local area network development teams. At the time, they developed what was called as a token ring network, which uh, was a, a competitor of Ethernet uh, and IBM's primary, most strategic uh, uh, network. But uh, based on the skills that I learned at, at, at GIAC, it made it fairly easy for me to weave my way into IBM and, and make an impact. Yeah, what I do talk a lot about in the book is the criticality of building that solid technical exactly. foundation before moving into uh, management roles, and and really advise people against moving into management too quickly until right. you fundamentally established a solid base of technical skills, and and then of course even after you move into management, and even after moving to become a senior executive at a company. The foundation always has to be technology. So I found myself going out of my way to maintain my technical skills right. as well as I possibly could, uh, irrespective of the role that I was that I was in, because the decisions that you're making are technology decisions, and you have to have the confidence that you're making the the right one, or the the ramifications can be can be huge. So I always wanted to make sure that I was technical enough to not make decisions, but at least have meaningful conversations and right. be able to formulate my own opinions based on those conversations and, and based on on the knowledge. But uh, GIAC was a godsend for me because it just, you know, forced me to realize that you can kind of learn anything if you set your right. mind to it. And, and uh, I didn't know all that much about how you build mainframe computers. But three years later, I knew a lot about how you build mainframe computers. Right. And I I, uh, uh, I use that uh, at, at IBM every day. And I, I think what particularly resonates with me about that, this idea of building a technical foundation, is that over the decades since, you know, you were doing that uh, consciously earlier in your career, you know, nearly every company now is on some level of technology company, right? You have automotive manufacturers that have become data companies. You have airlines that are now logistics companies, right? And like... Uh, you know, even Amazon, which is a retailer becoming, you know, with AWS and everything else, right? Like technology is at the center of essentially any, any business in today's world. So the idea of having a technical foundation, then marrying that with, with business acumen and, and the ability to lead and, and be a manager and so on makes a ton of sense. And I think it probably holds even more true today. Um, one thing that, that listeners, 
you know, probably starting to see a theme through though, is that we've, I've had a number of people, maybe five or six at this point that had really formative years also at IBM. So it's particularly in like the, the nineties, it seemed to be like a breeding ground for incredibly successful leaders down the line. Um, because even across those five or so people, they've all ended up in rather different kind of careers, whether it's consulting or whether it's in technology leadership like yourself. And I guess I'm curious, you know, while it's very clear, I mean, you articulated it, that there's enormous opportunities for learning and exposure at a company that was really, you know, a premier uh, technology player in that time. What is it about that nine or 10 year mark that seems like the magic number that, that for me, I've at least witnessed people kind of staying at IBM and then springboarding into pretty strong positions in their next career opportunity? What, what is it about that time period? Well, you know, I, I, I think that's very insightful because because it's true. And I think it's a it's an inflection point for for a lot of people. I, I had, you know, still some colleagues that I, I remain in touch with who remained at IBM for their entire careers and built incredible careers at IBM without uh, ever having gone anywhere else. Some of the most you know, senior executives in in the business right. remain there uh, their entire year, their their entire careers. But I think you're right. There is this you know eight to twelve year kind of time frame where you really have to think about: Am I going to achieve my career aspirations right. at IBM? And uh, incredible company uh, in those days. I'm I'm, I'm sure it still is, uh, uh, but in terms of their your ability to logically um, uh, progress from one level to the next uh, by making concrete decisions and to stay in a technical career path or a uh, a management career path. Uh, IBM was the first company that I knew of that had this notion of a of an IBM fellow, and right. an IBM fellow was equivalent uh, from a, a job. A hierarchy perspective to a vice president on on a management path. Um, they they got paid the same. Uh, they got uh, incentivized the same way. Uh, maybe the only difference was they they walked on water. Right? If you actually saw an IBM fellow walking <laughs> by, you kind of free up the hallway and, yeah. and would talk that that guy's an IBM fellow. It was literally the pinnacle of your career that somebody could achieve. But again, that was a conscious choice. At one point, do you, do you move down the management path or do you stay on the technical career path? And they managed that probably better than any other company I'd ever, I'd ever seen. Um, uh, I decided to go on the management career path after, uh, after you know, four or five years or so at IBM. And they were great in, in walking you through that. Uh, there, there comes a point, though, where it is, at the end of the day, a 350000 person organization. And with that comes a fair amount of politics. I think you see more and more of that politics, the higher up the hierarchy you go. Um, And there's a decision point that that you have to make. Do do you um, play that political game at a a company that large and, and, uh, and get really good at it? Um, Or do you want to move outside, take the skills that you learned and, and, and uh, move your move your career elsewhere where you right. you think you can utilize those skills and 
Um, and plus, in order to move up beyond, I was a second level manager. To move up to that next level, it really did require a foreign assignment uh, for right. a year or two. Uh, for me, that was not something I was particularly interested in doing. I knew it was something I had to do if I wanted to move up to the next level. Again, I had three young kids. I didn't feel like moving. Um, I know my wife didn't feel like moving yeah. to a foreign land somewhere. So uh, Waterloo was only an hour uh, an hour away from Toronto and an hour away from family. And, and that was far enough for us. But yeah. um, uh, th- those were really the reasons. But, but, but I, think, I think it is that you know, you get to that point, do I want to enter, you know, the world of, of politics and an organization that large? Uh, and, and I didn't think I was all that good at it. And, right. and uh, certainly I knew other people were a lot better at handling themselves in those situations than I was. So it was just clear to me that it was time to leave. That's very interesting. I think it takes a lot of... Um self-reflection and, and also, uh, courage to be able to, to make, to, to have that realization that, you know, some of the core enablers of ascending beyond where I am today, I'm simply not better than the folks that are clearly doing it at an elite level. And, and I do admire, you know, people who are able to ascend, uh, to the most senior ranks of a company like IBM or the Accentures of today, where you've got literally hundreds of thousands of people, like s- oh, yeah. small s- cities worth just distributed across the world, right? Uh, or large cities, really. Um, because I even reflect on my o- own organization, 20,000 people, that's not small. Uh, and, and I find myself being able to understand my place in that ecosystem, right? Um, but then to think about expanding the size of that ecosystem by 10x and yes. and just shrinking in terms of my stature in that organization is a pretty daunting idea. So I can absolutely understand that. I don't think until now anyone had framed that context around, for example, why that decision point happens around that 8 to 12 year mark. I think that makes a ton of sense and probably something that folks are experiencing at similarly sized organizations today elsewhere. Um I am curious though, as you navigated from being very deeply technical, right, into that management path, right, a, a really important skill set is in terms of being able to ascend into any sort of management role out of a technical role is really, you know, competent or, or excellent levels of communication in a lot of different facets, right? So, was maybe tell us a little bit about because I know this is a topic inside your book as well. Like, how are you consciously developing communication as a skill set to make sure you were positioned well to ascend into management? And then clearly, you, you did it well because you then ascended into pretty senior leadership roles for the balance of your career. Yeah, it, it's it's uh, there. There is nothing more important than than being a good communicator. And as you said, there's a chapter in my book is in uh, that's titled "Build Competence in All Facets of, of Communication." For me, it it uh, it it uh, kind of hit me squarely in the head. Uh, I, I still remember to this this day. I write about it in the book um, about uh, about this. You know terribly embarrassing situation that happened to me when, when I was uh, a fairly young engineer at, at IBM. I had not moved into management yet, but um, uh, started to take on somewhat more, more senior roles. And I had to give a, a small presentation, relatively small meeting room, maybe eight to 10 people. Um, knew the material. It was, you know, about technology that I, that I knew well. 
but I got ridiculously nervous. Uh, um, I read the materials. I had too much information on the slides. Uh, uh, I got, I got so nervous. I started sweating profusely, uh, like literally dripping. Yeah. And, uh, one of my, my buddies, I, I, who, uh, I worked closely with, I saw him kind of snickering in, in the background and he actually leaned forward and handed me a, 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 a napkin to, 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 Oh, wow. Yeah. To, to, uh, uh, and it was at that point that I realized I honestly have a, a big problem in, in terms of communications and feeling comfortable communicating. So my, my boss at the time recommended, um, or maybe I asked, I can't, to go on one of these intensive communication courses that IBM put on. IBM was great this way. They, they, uh, uh, they had courses for everything and, and, uh, and they were several days long. And, and I remember in this course, we were taped over and over and over again. And, and, and the, the last presentation that we gave on the, on the final day of the course had to be the same presentation that we gave on the first day of the course. Oh, interesting. And they, they played them back to back at the end. And the difference between the two was truly remarkable. How much my communication skills improved, my presentation skills improved over, over that three-day period. Um, and, and from that point forward, I, I, I think I never really got you know, terribly nervous again. I still had lots of room for improvement. But a byproduct of that course also was that I discovered that it wasn't just about presentation skills. It was how you handled one-on-one conversations. It was how you motivated people. It was how you presented to large audiences of thousands of people or doing an executive update. Uh, It was how you motivate people. Uh, It's how you listen effectively to people. Um, All of the skills from a communication perspective that extend so far beyond presentation skills um, are ultimately, you know, are, are fundamentally rooted in how comfortable are you um, speaking and feeling that the right words will come to you at the right, right time, and you do it naturally and authentically. And to me, it's one of the most critical skills that a leader has to get comfortable with. Let's say beyond, you know, having good technology uh, skills. Um, and I used it every single day, yeah. uh, almost every hour, every day in my career. And, and I thank IBM for the opportunity for that. And, and, and again, like anything else, you, you have these certain points in your career. And that particular meeting was one of the turning points in my career because I realized that I had to, I had to do something about this or I'm not going to be able to achieve anything. Yeah, I, that resonates with me hugely. And I think what I find interesting about it is um, I've always found it really easy to communicate when you do know the answer, right? I think that is something that whether you're a strong communicator naturally or not, when you know something really deeply, it's easier. But what I have found particularly important about honing your communication skills is so that way you can navigate the situations where you don't know the answers or where you find yourself in a situation where you are wrong or you you don't have all the information. Navigating that 
you know, is as much a skill set rooted in communication as it is knowing whatever technology landscape or problem or, or, or space that, that you kind of don't know the information in. And so for me, that's been particularly important uh, when I have consciously developed my, my speaking skills is, is being able to get to a point where I can, like you said, I'm confident the words will flow naturally and as I intend them to. And so that way I'm not thinking about that. Instead, I'm problem solving. How do I get out of this situation and bridge the gap to the next opportunity to show them that we do have the answer? So I, that resonates with me hugely. And then, I mean, maybe a little funny anecdote. You talk about sweating uh, profusely. You know, I think earlier on before I was maybe as confident a speaker as I am maybe now in my career, I would absolutely sweat quite a bit, right? When I'd get up in front of a crowd and I very quickly learned that a dress shirt wasn't enough for me, right? And so I I was I was always the guy who had that blazer or um you know a sport jacket or a sweater just in case, right? And that way I'm not worried about the big sweat stain that's forming on my back and rather I'm just focused on the presentation. So I that resonates with me and I think, you know, uh, you know, pro tip for anybody out there if you get a little nervous and you start sweating, just keep yeah. that blazer on, yeah. you know, man or woman, I think that's an easy solve. But I, I am curious now, you know, jumping over to your your now kind of big leap into senior management at Descartes, uh, moving away from IBM, you're able to go into kind of a, a VP plus role. And, um, you know, you mentioned, though, that you, you moved into that role uh, into a space where you didn't necessarily no, in completely, completely in depth, right? Like it was uh, probably maybe is this a fair characterization or description? It was a stretch role for you, right? In that you're embarking on a new space or new field. Maybe t- t- talk a little bit about how you were able to successfully sell yourself to 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 take on a role like that, um, based on you know your foundation of technology and your experience, but moving into kind of an unknown space. How did how did you successfully sell yourself to get that type of opportunity? Yeah, that uh, great great question. And and this happened to me, by the way, over and over uh, again in in my career. If I look at at what I did, I I. I one point, I was designing computer systems. Um, then I moved into telecommunications. Then I moved into logistics and transportation management. Then I moved into logistics and robotics and warehouse automation. Mm-hmm. Um, so all sorts of different types of engineering leadership roles. And each time, I knew literally nothing about what I was moving into. Uh, all I had was a technical foundation. Um, and even in that first role at Descartes, uh, it was my technical background, communication skills, my ability to sell myself um, that landed me the role. And uh, the CEO of Descartes at the time recognized that the skills that I had were the skills that they needed that they didn't have, and they felt comfortable that they could teach me and I could learn uh, the specifics of the industry that they were in. I think ultimately he he proved uh, to to be right. right. Um, you know, I think obviously you have to have have confidence. I think I went into those meetings probably reading as much as I could before I had the the, the interviews, so at least I didn't sound too stupid going yeah. to interviews about what they were doing. Um, but literally, I didn't know anything except what I would have read a day or two before the uh, the meeting. And I think when you do go in 
to these roles, um, you have to have a fair amount of humility. Uh, mm-hmm. You have to freely admit that you don't know this industry. Uh, you have to talk to everybody that you can talk to uh, who are experts in the field, be it on my own team or peers that had been in the industry for a while and, and learn and listen and, and, and then go home at night and figure it out and read more and learn more and then come with a list of questions the next day. And, yeah. and, and what I always found is in, in two to three months, I learned enough to be, you know, dangerous to be able mm-hmm. to conduct intelligent conversations on the topic. And in less than a year, I, you know, became at least at a management level expert enough in the field that I became highly desired by other companies in that, in that same uh, vertical. Uh, you know, the other thing I discovered about Descartes when I moved there is that how important an executive title was something I didn't actually realize oh, interesting. Um, in that, that I became a vice president at, 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 at Descartes and all of a sudden all of Descartes competitors or even tangential in uh, companies in tangential fields were headhunting me for vice president or executive level roles uh, a year after I had joined, none right. of that was none of that happened when I was at IBM, um, and it's kind of a reality. It, it, it seems that once you have, you know, landed a role at a certain level, uh, all of a sudden there's all sorts of companies around that 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 come after you to uh, steal you away from that company to perform a similar kind of role. I remember at, at Descartes, I had no interest in leaving, but it was kind of nice to have that in the bank, knowing that if I ever, you know, found myself unhappy at Descartes, which of course came, it happened at, 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 at several companies. Uh, it was nice to know that there were lots of opportunities out, out, outside of Descartes and, and, uh, it's kind of a, a surprise to me, but uh, but a, a pleasant surprise, I guess. Knowing knowing yeah. how you valued your management skills were uh, elsewhere. I think that's a really important thing, though, to because you're establishing a point of con- uh, a position of confidence in the leverage that you have, knowing that you know you can advocate for yourself, for your growth, for your happiness at the organization because of the fact that you could find it elsewhere if you really needed to. And I think that that builds a level of confidence in yourself that um, is really important as, as from a self-advocacy perspective. And so, you know, I think that's a very candid and, and, and real thing that uh, does have an impact on how folks navigate their careers. But, I, you know, as as you kind of grew in your role at Descartes and you you became an expert in that in that industry and space, right? You talk about the fact that you're transitioning to leading hundreds of people across several countries as a senior executive. Like, there's an enormous amount of accountability that comes with that, and I know that's something that you talk about in your book. This idea of of doing what you say you're going to do. Talk a little bit about you know the, the daunting nature of like when making a claim or a promise and then having to follow through at that scale, right? And and, and having that level of leadership and responsibility because i mean that's something that you kind of have to learn trial by fire i would imagine because to to, you to scale to leading hundreds of people from being an individual contributor maybe three four years prior to that as at a technical level is you know there's quite a bit of learning that comes with that yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. And I talk a lot about this in, 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 in my book as well. And, and, you know, to some extent, there's two levels of, of doing what you say you're going to do. It's, it's kind of doing what you say you are going to do personally, which you have 100% control over. Right. And then there's accomplishing the goals of an entire team, um, which you try your best to achieve, but um, uh, sometimes you're successful. Sometimes you're not as successful as you, you, you would like to be. Um, and certainly we had some challenges in, in, in Descartes in, in, in those early days. That, th- those were the days of, of, of Y2K where uh, we made all sorts of commitments to deliver a Y2K compliant uh, version of a system uh, for customers that might have built an internal version of that system over the last 20 years. And we committed to replacing it with our newly developed one that we developed in a year. And there was a hard stop on January 1st, 2000. That system had to be up and running and working and replacing right. every element. And we did not succeed on, on, on all of those. So, you know, we, we, we sold it. Um, it was, it was challenging. And, and, and in fact, you know, some of the challenges we had were, were some of the reasons that, that I ended up, um, leaving Descartes in, in, in the end. Um, you know, quite honestly, I, I, I think I, I didn't achieve, uh, all of the things that, that, that the company needed, needed me to, because they were, um, they were just beyond, um, reasonable expectations in many cases. And, and it was really because of this hard right. deadline that, that, that had to happen. Um, but, but those are these larger, um, scale deliverables. What I talk a lot about in, in the book is do what you say you're going to do personally. When you make a commitment to um, get back to somebody, to um, complete a task, when you say to somebody that you're going to do something, there's no reason for not, uh, for not achieving those things. I used to manage my entire life uh, with, with lists. I had a, a to-do list oh, and a follow-up list. Uh, so anytime I made a commitment to anybody, I would very quickly document what that commitment was usually on my mobile device and it would sync, um, or on my, or on my laptop, uh, and there would be a date and, and I would review that list continuously. I would reorder it, reprioritize it, have complete visibility into what I had to do when I knew, I I knew when I had to work later on at night in order to get things done. And likewise, I had a follow-up list. Anytime somebody made a commitment to me uh, as to what they were going to achieve, or if it came up in a meeting when they made certain commitments, I would just religiously add these things into my follow-up, follow-up list. So I literally managed my life at, at work with, with two lists, a, a follow-up list and a, and a to-do list. And I was, cool. I was just balancing them all, managing them all. And... Uh, and I also knew when I was starting to fall behind that uh, I had to be more uh, conscious of what else I would put onto that list. Um, had to get good at saying no uh, because I knew that I had too many more things. And if I ever did feel that I was likely to miss a date that I had committed to, I would take ownership of that and go to the person and say, I'm going to need another week for it. I know I made the commitment, but. I, I never wanted people to think that I forgot. Right. Um, and, uh, and then over time, people, people realized that I had a mechanism for 
uh, for, for following up on these things. And, and I found that I had to pester them less because they, um, you know, first they thought they had, the, I, I had this incredible memory that I didn't forget and nothing could be further from the truth. I just used my lists and I followed up religiously. And, uh, it was amazing how, how positive an impact that had on people because we could create a culture where everybody was really focused on delivering on, on the commitments that they made to each other. And, and I think that just, you know, helps you gain a reputation for yourself that that uh, um, is so important as somebody that uh, you know as a man or woman of their word and and they they uh, they deliver and and on on what they say they're going to deliver um, but you know the larger scale deliveries that 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 depends on how effectively you manage the team and and uh, uh, I learned a lot in that respect over the years as well, and and uh, I think got better at delivering on team wide, organization wide commitments. But nobody does that perfectly, right? You do that as well as you possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and you know, I think that's such a simple and elegant way to to manage. Uh, you know, your workload and your commitments, this idea of these two lists. And, you know, I like the idea of the follow-up list. I, I absolutely also live my life by a to-do list. I will be totally candid and say that, you know, my to-do list has two fatal flaws um, that I'm very much still working on, on course correcting. One of them is, is my penmanship is just terrible. I am a physical person and I need to write it, but, uh, my wife often laughs at me and will play a game over a glass of wine where she picks up my notebook and, and asks me to read back what the word says. And, and, you know, my hit rate is like 60%. That's a problem. Right. And then the other aspect of it is, is I, I, I honestly don't add enough detail sometimes to the notes. And then I'm left there confounded a couple of days later, like what exactly was this to do items? So, you know, I, I really like that. And it, it's something that I that I absolutely use, but I, I could absolutely be better on and I'm still working on. But the fact that you were able to use that successfully over such a long career is is, is obviously encouraging. Um, I, I'm curious now, you know, jumping over to your time at, at BlackBerry and RIM, obviously. And I think I mentioned this in our conversations uh, leading up to today's recording, but you know, I went to the University of Waterloo. Research in Motion at the time, right, between 2008 and 2013, it's all anyone talked about from the perspective of internships or co-op opportunities. Everyone wanted a job at RIM. Um, you know, it was the be-all and end-all right next to the campus. And uh, I unfortunately didn't end up getting that opportunity, but it was something that everyone aspired to. And uh, But at the same time, then as I moved into my career, when I first joined uh, at the time Sapient Nitro, now Poulos is Sapient, I mentioned to you that Research in Motion or BlackBerry was my first big client. Um, and it was in that moment of 2013, 2014, where, you know, around the time you were leaving, where obviously the world had shifted. You now had, like you said, the titans of Apple, Microsoft, Google playing in the same space, disrupting at a pace that was very difficult to, to keep up with for, you know, even though you guys were a pioneer in, in that space uh, of mobile communications um, for a smaller player. My question to you is, you know, you join an organization like that. You talk about it being some of the most invigorating, energizing times of your career, Right. But then you saw the landscape shifting and, and maybe there were decisions that you were observing being made at a, at a you know, most senior leadership level that uh, didn't necessarily pay off as was, you know, just the overall industry shifting. 
How do you manage in that sort of scenario, continuing to perform at your best, even though you see some of those changes happening that you maybe that maybe worry you, but also maybe you don't agree with with regards to some of the decisions? That's difficult, right? To position yourself for your next opportunity, you can't suddenly stop working hard and and creating impact, um, particularly in a situation like that. But that must be a difficult thing to navigate. I, yeah, I I, I, th- I think it is. Um, uh, although, you know, it's not something that that I think day to day, I, I really focused on when, when I was at, at RIM, I was fortunate, uh, to be in a senior enough position at RIM that I had a, a seat at the table, right. Um, at a number of these strategic discussions that, that, that were going on. It was a little later than that, um, when the executive team changed and new executives were coming in every day, uh, it all happened relatively quickly. Uh, I still didn't have difficulty working hard, but uh, certainly my heart wasn't in it right. the way that it was before. Um, you know, it's amazing. I, I, I think back and I talked to many of my ex, ex-colleagues at, at, at RIM as well. And, you know, people sometimes say, geez, what happened to RIM, BlackBerry? You guys had the whole world and, and really screwed it up. And we think about it differently than that, in that um, we created a market in, right. in, uh, in this space. And, and we found ourselves in the middle of some very challenging decisions that we had to make. Um, Apple effectively with its app store and with its application development environment, um, you know, figured out a way how to really enable any kind of application on their device. That was not a focus for BlackBerry at the time. Uh, We had a decision to make, do we jump on the Android bandwagon and uh, build the world's most secure version of Android? Or do we build a third ecosystem that was a... Uh, BlackBerry ecosystem sitting alongside Apple right. and and Android, and we ultimately decided that the world could uh, accept a third ecosystem. I think that turned out to be the wrong decision, but hindsight is always twenty twenty. That was not obvious yeah. at the at the time, and um, uh, so so there were some really really difficult decisions that had to be made. Um, uh, we evaluated them all all carefully. Uh, but we like to think about uh, the incredible success that a company like RIM, you know, ultimately BlackBerry uh, achieved as opposed to uh, the failure. And it made way for new technological advancements and the world and, you know, as we know it today, as it relates to mobile communications. Uh, but BlackBerry really was a, a pioneer in that, in that space and, and the motivation was high. But there comes a point in time, and I talk about this in the book, where you just listen to your gut. Yeah. And, you know, there's this famous saying, I, I don't think anyone is credited to it, but, you know, always listen to your gut. It knows what your, what your head hasn't figured out yet. Oh, and, interesting. Uh, and, 
And to me, that is, is, is so true. And that happened over and over again in my career. And there was a point in time at RIM where, you know, my gut was telling me, um, you know, this was a great 10 years, but it's time for me to leave. I, I absolutely love that quote. Uh, and I think it really rings true. And, and it, I, I mentioned my wife again, but she's just a, a huge source of inspiration for me as somebody who's so driven and, and finding success in her own career. But she often talks about the power of her instinct and, and leaning into it because it always seems to pay off. And, and when you articulate it that way, it makes absolute yeah. sense. And you know, I, I, I think that, it, you know, as you as you talk about that decision to uh, that BlackBerry made and, and Rim made to to find and create the space in the industry for that third ecosystem. It's not a decision that was unique to BlackBerry. You know, Microsoft has been still attempting to do that for for or did at the time as well. And, and as we say, like one of the Titans in the space and also failed, right. And and considerably right over and over again with different device partnerships, with different versions of a mobile OS that was drastically different than what we were seeing from Android and, and, um, and Apple. So, you know, I think it was the aspirational thing as like a visionary leader that maybe, um, you know, or a group of visionary leaders that believed in what BlackBerry had built to date, right? And it, I that decision totally resonates with me, and it's one of like defiance, right? Um, to to kind of step down and and concede to other players, but it, you know, you weren't alone. Rim wasn't alone in that decision, so it's interesting to hear that from this perspective, um, being somebody who's a consumer observing the evolution of that industry and space. But I mean, from there, obviously, you had you had a great last uh, opportunity, like you said, um, uh, at Dematic, where you were able to to leave on such a positive note and retire, knowing that you were still contributing, delivering great impact. But then you transitioned into kind of this post career career, and one of the the highlights being over and above the consulting that you're able to do is writing the book that we keep referencing. And I guess talk a little bit about what motivated you to to write the book. I mean, was it something you always aspired to do, and and maybe um, if so was it to write a book at all or specifically on kind of the things that you learned across your career? Yeah. And, and thanks so much for asking that, 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 that question. Writing a book is something I think deep down inside of me, I, I, I always wanted to do. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I knew I had to have something to say, something of, of, of value. Uh, writing a book is not about, you know, making money. Um, it, uh, uh, Few people can, but most people, um, it's it's not a very good hourly uh, hourly wage. I can right. make money, uh, more easily different different ways. But there comes this incredible satisfaction associated with writing this book, and 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 it really is rooted in the fact that I felt I had something important to say. Um, I read a lot of um, of nonfiction books, uh, biographies. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell is one of my my favorite yeah, authors. I love him. I, I talk about this a little bit in in, in my book. That um, one of my favorite books of his is is Outliers, and and in Outliers they talk about this this study, um, and that 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 was conducted, and and the finding from that study uh, came to uh, if you have an IQ between 125 and 185. Um, there is no discernible difference in the level of success that you right. are likely to achieve. And, you know, what effectively that says, in order to 
uh, reach your full potential and maximize the amount of success you can achieve, you have to be you have to be smart, um, but you only have to be smart enough. And beyond a certain threshold, success is determined by a wide assortment of skills. Right. But certainly not um, a single skill. It's certainly not being you know the best, uh, the smartest. It's certainly not being you know the strongest technical person. And that always resonated with me. And and you know when I looked around, I I I, I asked myself the question. Um, why did I achieve uh, the level of success that I was fortunate enough to achieve um, uh, advancing to to fairly senior levels in fairly large organizations? And I knew it wasn't because I was um, you know smarter than 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 people that were sitting around me. I was always amazed by how brilliant so many of my colleagues were, yet they never advanced to a level that i I thought they could and and what motivated me was to to write a book about all of those little things and try to distill them down in an organized fashion through relatable stories that actually happened to me uh, that made light bulbs turn on in my brain as to what I needed to focus on in order to achieve that next next level. And that's really what the book is about. We don't learn this stuff when we go to engineering school or to another STEM program, right. we learn about technology and all these other um, skills, various principles that you need to focus on, the characteristics that you have to develop. Um, those are all on the job learning. Um, but the, 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 the earlier in your career, you understand what these things are and you put a plan in place to start focusing on them. Uh, the more likely it is that you are going to rise to a level that that certainly allows you to achieve your your full potential, and, and that really was the motivation for the book. Um, you know, paying back, paying it forward, as they as they say. Um, you know, and, and and I felt I had something important to say, and on top of that, I ended up really enjoying the process. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, so I'm actually writing a second book right now with a couple. Oh, that's of exciting. Really really brilliant ex-colleagues that I work with at, at Dematic. This one's a more technical book uh, related to robotics and, and automation. But uh, um, but I just found it a, a very enjoyable uh, process to go through and, and, and something that, that uh, you know, I ended up being very proud of and, and I think can make a difference in the careers of other people. I mean, that resonates hugely for me. It's part of, you know, it seems like we share a um, passion for this sort of space in terms of, you know, why you potentially wrote a book and why I host this podcast, right? To basically have the, uh, give the opportunity for anyone who was willing to listen to learn from people who've had these great career journeys like yourself and all the other folks that have been on the nearly 70 episodes of this podcast, uh, because there's just so many transferable learnings, you know, from one industry to the next, from one profession to the next, whether it's pro athlete or, you know, technology executive and anything in between, right? There's just so much transferability and, and ability to apply and unlock kind of growth in your own career. And, and, you know, that brings me to my last question, because I think what I found particularly interesting as I went through your book is that the the closing learning was this idea of, of being kind. And I think it's a great kind of closing question too. And I, I'm curious if you could elaborate a little bit on how, how, how that is kind of the, the closing thought on a book that has so much depth and insight in it. 
um, as you reflect back on your career and kind of why people should lean into that maybe as, as early in their careers as possible? Yeah, I, I, it is. I, there, there was a, a reason I, I made that chapter, the, the last chapter in the book, because um, something I really wanted to leave the reader with. And being kind at work and being helpful to others at work um, is so critical in order to uh, achieve success. I tell this story in in the book, and this again was very early in my career. Um, when I was at IBM, I did a, a, a master's in engineering part time. I have a lot of work at night. Part of that was to uh, write a, a, a simulation application um, for this what I called the spatial token ring. How to make a token ring um, uh, local area network operate. Um, faster. And so I simulated it and I proved that um, with this added complexity of, of multiple tokens, I could, I, could make the, uh, I, I could make a local area network perform better. Um, and and sh- right around that time, we had a student, a uh, really brilliant student, um, who was working on the Ethernet um, uh, network with me. And part of his job was to a requirement for the university was to uh, write a report mm-hmm. and a project on his work term and what he learned. So I recommended to him that he just take my uh, the work that I did in my my master's thesis, and I would help him with it and and convert that into a in, into a project where he could compare the uh, the throughput and efficiency characteristics of the Ethernet protocol against other local area networks. And, and, and he thought that was a great idea. Um, I shared the code, I explained the code with him, and then I helped him with his, his project. Um, he graduated a year later at the, at the top of his class, and, um, and he ended up coming back to IBM. And I remember he told our manager at the time, that he came back to IBM because he wanted to work with me again because he had, oh, wow. had such a great experience. Um, and I didn't do anything other than I was helpful and I was kind. And shortly after he came back, I actually got uh, promoted into my very first team lead position mm-hmm. at IBM. And, and I had heard after that it had a fair amount to do with the fact that, um, that this, this, uh, student at the time who then became a new employee at IBM spoke so highly about uh, my helpfulness and how, how nice I was to work with and how he just wanted to work with me again. And it, it expedited my, my promotion to be um, uh, to, in, into team leadership and ultimately into management at, at, at IBM. And, and that kind of defined how I wanted to lead going forward and mm-hmm. how I realized that by just being helpful and kind, not only are you making the company better, uh, but it pays you back over and over and over again if that just becomes a fundamental um, uh, way in which you operate at, 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 at work. So countless stories about this sort of thing and the reverse. Those that are generally not kind and not helpful... Um, are far less likely yeah. to uh, be, be be recognized. So um, these are just principles that you have to put into action at at work. 
Um, and there are many of them, but I think it's so important to be conscious of them and so important on how they come back to help you or haunt you if you don't actually uh, do them and do them consistently. I, I love that because it is such a simple idea. And that is such a great example of how it, you know, had paid very quick dividends, right? Without you doing it to, you know, as a means to an end, it wasn't that it was from a genuine place. And I think if you can authentically do that, um, you'll, so I think anyone will continue to have experiences like you just described where it ends up paying off in the end. And so, um, I, I absolutely love that. It's something that I definitely try to practice, uh, in my own career, this idea of, of offering disproportionate value to others, right. Um, throughout as wherever I can. And I think it's a great, a great closing sentiment for, for what I think has been an honestly fantastic conversation. Pete, I really appreciate you coming on, on the podcast and being open to, to talking so candidly about your career. There's so much for people to learn from here. And honestly, I look forward to having a conversation again in the future. So thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you. I, I enjoyed it so much. And, and there's uh, really no better podcast for me to be on. I mean, Own Your Potential and, and uh, Decoding Your STEM Career just seemed like they're, 100%. Uh, they're a perfect match, right? It, it's, uh, it's really the same theme. And uh, um, I appreciate the opportunity, Peter. <laughs>